0: Chapter 16. Freedom. Many a time during the years I was in prison or the labor camps of Siberia, officials and interrogators told me I would never again go free in the Soviet Union. Sometimes they said it sarcastically, sometimes threateningly, sometimes merely matter-of-factly. When I was called in for interrogations in the prison camp, as all priests were on a regular basis, it was almost a certainty that sometime in the conversation a camp official would assure me that I would never see freedom again. Of course, they knew and I knew that my term was officially 15 years, but that fact was shrugged off almost as a sort of legal fiction. Besides, there were so many technical violations and minor infractions of the camp rules going on at all times that officials could always find some excuse to tack on an added term if they wanted. They were in charge. Their word was law, and the prisoner had no recourse to the courts or much hope of appealing to higher authority in such a case. Even my fellow prisoners in casual conversation nearly always took it for granted that I would never see the end of my term or the outside of prison camp barbed wire. They would wag their heads sympathetically and shrug their shoulders, but they accepted it as just another fact of the systematic injustice we had to endure, regrettable, but a foregone conclusion. After a while, even I came to believe it and accept it as a fact of life. One spring morning, however, in the prison camp of Kairkon, I was called to the camp office before work and told I would be liberated in ten days. Checking my records, the camp officials had found that according to some new regulations, I was entitled to three months off my term. I actually served, therefore, only 14 years and nine months of my 15-year sentence. So in the next few evenings after work, I began a round of medical examinations and the red tape of paperwork that preceded a prisoner's release. The night before, I was actually to be released. I didn't sleep a wink. I simply couldn't believe that after 15 years, I would really be free again. About 9 o'clock the next morning, the foreman called me from the barracks and took me to the KGB, the Internal Security Police Office, where I sat for about two hours signing documents and filling out forms i kept expecting some trouble or possibly another interrogation but the men on duty went about it all quite routinely paying no more attention to me than they would to any other prisoner being set free finally everything was in order and one of the officials explained in great detail my new status those who leave the prison camps are not fully free instead of the passport issued to and carried by all soviet citizens ex-prisoners get a so-called document of liberation which is a certificate stating that you have completed your sentence. Even then, a distinction is made. A prisoner may either be fully liberated or rehabilitated, or only partially, as in my case. As a convicted spy, I got what is known as a restricted certificate, or polizena pasporta. With it, I was restricted as to where I could live and where I could work. I wasn't allowed, for example, to live in any regime city for example, the big cities like Leningrad, Moscow, Kiev, Vladivostok, Tashkent, or in any of the border cities from which, presumably, I might try to leave the country. I could visit such places for periods not to exceed three days with the express permission of the police and the government. And with a Polisenia Passporta, one of the first things I had to do in any city was report to the police and register my presence there. After the officials had explained all this to me and checked out my camp documents for what seemed the hundredth time, they told me to go directly to Norosk when I left the camp and report to the police there. The police, they said, would give me a formal set of identity papers so I would be able to settle down in a city as a free citizen. By noon of an April day in Siberia, all the paper shuffling and explanations were over, and I walked out the main gate of the camp for the last time. Automatically, after I had gone about fifteen paces beyond the gate, I stopped and waited for the guards, as we prisoners did every morning on the way to work. The guards at the gate watched me and laughed. Nine out of ten liberated prisoners made the same mistake out of force of habit. I was so self-conscious. I didn't know how to walk like a free man. My arms, dangling at my sides rather than folded behind my back, felt strange. I turned to take a last long look at the camp, almost as if I'd have to tear myself away and then put my hands in my pockets and walked toward the town of Kyakon There was a train at the station. I climbed on board, and no one challenged me or paid the slightest attention to me. I couldn't believe it. The conductor, a woman, collected my fare. I kept expecting her to ask me questions or to raise a difficulty of some sort. She just smiled politely. I sat down in the seat looking out the window, almost in tears. A free man, treated like a free man. I kept waiting for something to happen, for somebody to shout or something to stop the train or someone to point at me, yet nothing happened. The train began to move, and I was free at last. I guess perhaps you have to be deprived of freedom in order truly to realize how precious a gift it is. Certainly one of the greatest torments to those in prison or in the prison camps was the knowledge and remembrance of what it had once meant to be free. The strict regime of the prisons and the camps only aggravated this feeling, for there everything was fixed. Not only was there confinement behind bars or barbed wire, but the minutest details of the daily order were fixed and inflexible. The prisoner made no decisions for himself. There was a fixed time to rise, a fixed time to report for work, a fixed time for recreation or exercise, a fixed time to retire at night. There were fixed times, too, for the meager meals, and if a man missed them for any reason, he simply went hungry. But worse than all these physical restrictions was the awful realization beaten into a man by bitter experience and constantly repeated by officials that a prisoner was a person without rights and to be treated as such. He became, in truth, a thing rather than an individual, with no respect for his dignity or his person or even for his existence as a human being. He was a number, and most often addressed by the guards and officials simply by his prison number. Some men were simply shattered by this realization. Some took refuge in thoughts only of the past, trying to blot out the awful realities of the present and in that way find an escape from the grim life of the camps. Some fell into fits of depression that gradually grew more intense under the pressures of camp life. Some of them simply gave up even the thought of hope and the will to go on. Few such people ever survived. It was only those who accepted the bitter loss of freedom, galling as it was, and resolved to follow their instincts for survival, who managed at last to walk out of the camps again. They banded together and formed friendships, almost like fraternity brothers, because instinct told them that a man alone ran the risk of losing out in the long run. Being with others, constantly communicating with them, gave a man some assurance. He had lost everything. His life was always exposed to the danger of sickness or a physical disability, even of death, and yet he was not alone. Someone in the barracks cared, even if he could not do much to help him, but could only console. Even this much, however, served to restore to some degree a prisoner's sense of human dignity, his sense of worth as a person. He in turn could feel sympathy with his friend's loss of freedom and uncertain future, could share his hope of survival, his memories of the past, his thoughts of the future. The body can be confined, but nothing can destroy the deepest freedom in men the freedom of the soul and the freedom of mind and will these are the highest and noblest faculties in men they are what make him the sort of man he is and they cannot be constrained even in prison a man retains his free will his freedom of choice even in prison a man can choose to do good or evil to fight for survival or to despair to serve God and others or to turn inward and selfish. Free will remains, and so freedom remains. For freedom is simply defined as the state of being free, not coerced by necessity or fate or circumstances in one's choices or actions. That freedom is absolute, and yet freedom itself is not an absolute, as many today would have us believe. Young people, too, often yearn for freedom and independence as if these were somehow absolutes. They speak of freedom as of a good in itself, as if it existed in some ideal order unfettered by obligations and duty. This drive for independence and freedom on the part of the young is a natural thing, a part of the process of growing up, of becoming mature individuals, of cutting the apron strings and preparing for adult life. Yet parents fail in their duty to their children if they let this tendency go unchecked, unrestrained, and do not insist that children exercise their freedom in the context of duties and obligations at home and in school, to parents and family, to friends and to those in authority. For the adult world that a child so ardently desires to attain, that he looks forward to so eagerly and impatiently, is also a world in which freedom is greatly modified by circumstances, by concrete obligations and limitations. And it is only in this real world of daily life that human freedom, such as it is, exists, and not in some ideal order. In a democratic society, freedom quite often suffers from its abuse by others rather than any legal restraints to its exercise, yet suffer it does. Sometimes it happens, it seems, because the laws of those who enforce them are too permissive and fail to punish adequately those who transgress the rights of others. In a totalitarian state, on the other hand, freedom suffers from lack of exercise, for the laws are stringent, the penalties severe, and authorities themselves curtail the rights of citizens. The fact is that the causes that limit the freedom of man in the concrete and real world we live in are many whether it be freedom of speech or of conscience, whether it be civil or social or religious or personal freedom, no matter under what aspects you consider the notion of freedom, you will always find difficulties in this life that cannot be solved and so render to each man the full freedom he desires. I sat in the train headed for Norilsk, exhilarated by my new freedom, and yet thinking such thoughts. What did it mean for me to be free, for any man to be free, I was out of the prison camps and free from the rigorous daily order, free to order my own life, free to make each day's decisions for myself. In that sense, I was free, yet I was not free of all restrictions. There were certain restrictions on me, especially as an ex-prisoner. There would always be special restrictions on me as long as I carried the Polizena Passporta. Yet these restrictions differed only in detail from the restrictions that bind every man in every society, the rules and observances, laws and customs, even the accepted traditions of family, church, society or culture. No man's freedom is absolute. Ultimately, the only absolute freedom we have resides in a man's free will. And that freedom was given us by our creator, essentially so that we might freely choose to love and serve him. All other creatures serve him out of exigency. By their very being and existence, they witness his power and his love or reflect his glory and beauty in some way. Only to man and the angels has he given the power of freely choosing to love and serve him. He has made us a little less than the angels, has given us intellect and free will, and that is the hallmark of man, at once his crowning glory, his most precious gift, his most terrifying responsibility. Only man can freely choose not to serve his creator. It is in choosing to serve God, to do his will, that man achieves his highest and fullest freedom. It may seem paradoxical to say that our highest and fullest freedom comes when we follow to the least detail the will of another, but it is true nonetheless when that other is God. I could testify from my own experiences, especially from my darkest hours in Lubyanka, that the greatest sense of freedom, along with the peace of soul and an abiding sense of security, comes when a man totally abandons his own will in order to follow the will of God. Never again could I doubt that the greatest assurance I could have in my life came from knowingly and willingly following God's will as manifested to me. I knew only too well how shallow and unsafe it was for me to follow my own will, my own inclinations and desires, unless they were in conformity to His. I realized then, and I felt it more deeply each day, that true freedom meant nothing else than letting God operate within my soul without interference, giving preference to God's will as manifested in the promptings, inspirations, and other means he chose to communicate, rather than enacting on my own initiatives. For those who do not believe in God, I suppose such thoughts will seem sheer nonsense or unexplainable stupidity. For me, however, there could be no doubt. The fullest freedom I had ever known, the greatest sense of security, came from abandoning my will to do only the will of God. What was there to fear so long as I did His will? Not death, not failure, except the failure to do His will. For if God is with us, who can stand against us? Choosing to do His will and experiencing the spiritual freedom that followed was my greatest joy and the source of tremendous interior strength. For to know that he directed me in all my actions, that he sustained me with his grace, gave me a sense of peace and courage beyond description. Even in moments of human discouragement, the consciousness that I was fulfilling God's will in all that happened to me would serve to dispel all doubt and desolation. Whatever the trials of the moment, whatever the hardships or sufferings, more important than all these was the knowledge that they had been sent by God and served his divine providence." I could not always fathom the depths of his providence or pretend to understand his wisdom, but I was secure in the knowledge that by abandoning myself to his will, I was doing as perfectly as I could his will for me. Spiritual freedom of this sort, as I knew from bitter experience, is not something that can be attained overnight or ever be possessed in its final form. Every new day, every new hour of every day, every new circumstance and situation, every new act, is a new opportunity to exercise and grow in this freedom. What is required for growth is an attitude of acceptance and openness to the will of God, rather than some planned approach or calculated method. Even ascetical practices such as penances, fasting, or mortifications can be hindrances rather than helps if they are self-imposed. Striving instead to eliminate all self-will, to accept God's will revealed in the circumstances of daily life, is the surest way to achieve growth in conformity to the will of God. It will provide more than enough virtue to be practiced, suffering to be sustained, pain to be borne. More important, it will make us fit instruments to achieve his designs, not only for our own salvation, but for others as well. The service of God must take preference over all else. A spirituality based on complete trust in God, therefore, is the surest guarantee of peace of soul and freedom of spirit. In it the soul must learn to act not on its own initiative but in response to whatever demands are imposed by god in the concrete instances of each day its attention must always be centered precisely and primarily on god's will as revealed and manifested in the people places and things he sets before us rather than on the means required to fulfill it then no matter what these means demand suffering, risk, loneliness, or physical hardships such as hunger or sickness, the consciousness of fulfilling God's will and accepting them makes the sacrifice easy, the burden light. There is no other reason to accept sacrifice or mortification. Indeed, to seek them for any other motive than conformity to the will of God is the sign of some spiritual distortion. But accepting whatever comes or happens as the will of God, no matter what it costs, spiritually, psychologically, or physically, is the surest and quickest way to a freedom of soul and spirit that surpasses all understanding and explanation. The train ride from Kyrkhan to Norilsk was not such a long one. It brought to mind again, however, that first long train ride into Russia from Lvov when I had been so sure that I was doing the will of God. That had truly been my reason for coming. But how imperfectly I had understood it then, how much I had learned in the meantime, how often I had failed, how painful the lessons had been. And now I was going at last as a free man to begin again what I had dreamed of doing then, serving the people of the Soviet Union as a priest in so far as I was able, helping them attain eternal salvation by serving and loving God. Physically, I might not be as free to do as much as I might wish, I had to register with the police as soon as I reached Norilsk, and I would surely be kept under surveillance. But spiritually, I had never felt freer or more secure in the conviction that God watched over me always and directed me along the paths marked out by His divine providence.